Hello and welcome to the Bad Music Hurts Podcast, the show where my siblings and I chat about our favorite records. This is episode 13, and we're discussing Supertramp's Breakfast in America from 1979. With me today, as always, is my brother, Michael. Hey, Michael, how you doing? Doing well. A little hungry. Want some breakfast. <laughs> well, th- well, luckily enough, we have kippers right here. Yes. Oh, mommy dear, mommy dear. <laughs> well, I hear they gotta have them in Texas. <laughs> Oh man. So I I if you'll allow me, I think we can't go any further talking about this record without first addressing the album art. <laughs> Cuz I feel it's um, yes. intrinsic to everything this album is. It's so goofy, tongue in cheek and just a treat to look at. Like there's so many like it's it reminds me of a uh, an I Spy book. Uh, what were they called? I get were they called I Spy books? Yeah, they were I Spy books. Yeah, yeah, where they had like all the different set pieces and scenes of all like the trinkets and stuff. Um, it reminds me of one of those, like because you got the the view out of the airplane right with the city, and everything is breakfast themed. So to paint a picture, a mental picture for uh, listeners, it, the image is you're in an airplane, you're looking out the window. And you see New York, except it's not New York. <laughs> Instead of the Statue of Liberty, you have what appears to be a uh, a very robust woman uh, that looks like she's dressed in 1950s diner's garb with this, like, sickeningly sweet yellow outfit holding up a, a glass of orange juice and has like the hey kind of look on her face <laughs> she's insane and in the background instead of new york if you, if you blink you you'll miss it but if you look more closely you'll see oh wait it's <laughs> it's all condiments and kitchenware stuff you have forks you have knives you have a ketchup dispenser you have salt and pepper shakers you have a milk carton you have uh, egg cartons you have coffee mugs it's every possible kitchenware appliance you can think of is represented in new york city in the back which is oh man it's a treat oh and i'd be remiss to not mention the absolutely it is the most unappetizing dish of breakfast foods i've ever seen in my entire life it looks so gross it is the most disgusting plate of breakfast food i've ever seen like if you have the Almart, i and it's not a high enough resolution go in the show notes we have a high resolution version there or go on the web and find it there whatever suits your fancy and zoom in on this album art because the the food on it looks so bad like the broccoli doesn't even look cooked the the toast looks like it's blanched and the eggs like i don't even know what to say about the eggs like it is mm, it is a treat oh yeah it looks just it looks like uh toy food is what it looks like (laughs) i hope you're hungry um yeah i love it because the the diner woman that's uh, on the album art is a spin on the Statue of Liberty, whereas opposed to the torch of the li- like the Liberty torch, it's 
a plate with orange juice on it <laughs> and uh, as opposed to the liberty tablet that has like the date of uh the declaration of independence you have her holding this like what appears to be a diner menu titled breakfast in america um to match the album so it 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 is pretty funny and mark i don't know if you stumbled across any of these but there also are some variants for this different singles of this album art oh so if you do uh, let's see if i can find one on google right now breakfast in america uh please send them my way i am i had no idea they had um I should have realized, of course, you know, it's typical for musicians, artists, bands to have alternative uh, single art that is still in the same vein as their um, core EP release. So, um, yeah, I'm very interested in seeing these. I don't know why I didn't think to look it up. Let's see here. I forget which one it is. I have it written down. Oh, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's Goodbye Stranger. It's a Goodbye Stranger solo album art. Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so the for the listeners, the, the Goodbye Stranger album art is oh, no. you putting the perspective of you're a person on Liberty Island looking up at the Statue of Liberty and opposed to this like kind of like happy, like mouth open, gaping smile of like, hey, from the Statue of Liberty. Instead, she's looking and gazing down at you like she's just been caught with her hand in the cookie jar. Um <laughs> and oh my god it's 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 just it's funny so there there are are, um other ones but that one is the one i want to highlight that i stumbled across that i thought was really fun oh they'll be in the show notes everyone please i implore you give them a look it is high art (laughs) (laughs) oh it's it's good fun it's good fun oh my god okay moving on from the absolutely not delicious, but still very fun album art. I, I'm curious, Michael, do you have any opening statements? I do have one, but I'm interested in uh, hearing anything you might have to say before we dive into the album itself. Um, I, uh, I guess the, the opening statement I have is the band was interesting to read into. There were some facts surrounding how they got their start and obviously the split between davies and hodge uh hodgson Hodgson. Yeah. is it hodgson uh, uh yeah no it's gonna be uh give me a minute here it's i have the names written down somewhere hodgson. yeah it's gonna be uh rick davies and roger hodgson hodgson so it's hot hodgson hodgson that's gonna <laughs> be gonna, hard to say we're gonna screw this up the entire episode so let's just lay that out there we're trying yeah. our best so i just found that really interesting reading into the whole band dynamic and we can kind of go into that a little bit more with um especially kind of more of the the data surrounding the band too on i mean this we're talking about this is the the peak of super tramp yeah if you look if you look just at um peak chart positions for the u.s and uk um, it wasn't until their third album, um, which was their uh, "Crime of the Century," where they actually started to place on the uh, on the charts. And then they they hit a lull with their next album, and then even in the quietest moments, kind of brought it back up. And so, if we were to kind of graph it, you would notice this: the initial peak of energy with. Uh, uh, or the peak of popularity with Crime of Century kind of dips down, and then even the quietest moments brings it up. It peaks at Breakfast in America, and then it's just a steady, sharp decline from there, from chart positions. And really, after after this album was released, uh, their follow up to it, um, 
which was uh, Famous Last Words, that was the last one, I believe, that Hodgson was on, and then he essentially left. So this is, we're talking about, this is like the peak of the band in its kind of like standard classic state, where you have the original members kind of together, uh, when, I guess not original, but like the key members that people think about. You got Davies and Hodgson together, and you produce this, in my opinion, amazing kind of feel-good, fun record. Uh, I guess for a more general opening statement, the, the words that jump out to me when I kind of listen to this is it's like theatrical carnival music fun. I know carnival music is kind of like a, a it could be viewed as like a derogatory term, but it's it's not. It's very like you get like high the, a lot of the high pitch instruments say if your your harpsichord and um occasionally your your sax and you got those bluesy jazzy elements then mix and then you <laughs> occasionally we have a tuba in here and so it's 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 very much the combination of instruments that they have here just it sounds like a bit of like a theme park ride at times and it's fun cuz you don't know where it's going Another thing that I would say for an opening statement is generally the songs on this album do, for the most part, kind of have your verse, chorus, verse, chorus, instrumental bridge, verse, chorus, like whatever. If you if you look up the lyrics, you kind of notice this, the standard structures kind of fall through for a majority of the songs on here. However, that being said, I think instrumentally what they do on this album covers that up where in my opinion, I feel that the instrumentation, you don't know where it's going at times. It kind of like goes different places to go. Like you're like, whoa, this is, this is different. It doesn't really, it it makes, it kind of puts a veil over the underlying structure. If you just straight look at lyrics. Um, And then there are also some songs on here that's just straight up have no standard song structure. Like you're gone Hollywood and in my opinion, I would also put like Child Division kind of in this bucket as well. Yeah, it just I guess that's kind of my opening statement. I was I was really intrigued kind of learning about the band. I think it's really interesting that this is we're talking about pretty much the peak of the band and just the instrumentation was such a treat on this album. Yeah, no, I would agree. So I'm going to be springboarding a bit off of some of the points you made in uh, my own opening statement. So I'm going to be uh, a Breedy Heron style, forging my own corner of the show here, <laughs> where um, I like I'd like to have a little segment called "Why Give a Shit," because um, <laughs> this is an old album by a band most people probably don't know by name, though you probably know quite a few songs from the band themselves, but maybe couldn't attribute the name to them. So. It's an old album, you don't know about them, you probably don't hear the songs anymore. Why give a shit? Super Tramp, up to this point, Michael uh, hit on the head pretty well, where the band was known for art rock, primarily. Uh, Like, we're talking crime of the century, and even in the quietest moments, in terms of, like, popular appeal, that's what they were known for at the time, with these songs with very artsy segments that were not really conducive to being played like on the radio or being like pop songs. Think actually kind of a little bit maybe like some of the things that the Beatles were doing with a few of their songs in, um, let's say, uh, Revolver or Sgt. Pepper or um, the White Album, um, where some of the songs are just really 
weird and artsy and they maybe even have like bits of spoken word or like audio snippets from completely unrelated things thrown in there like that sort of thing i'm doing a poor job of describing art rock in the dictionary sense but that's what comes to my mind when i think of like art rock um and that's what they're known for and as a result, they didn't really make it super big. Sure, a few of their more poppy, approachable songs or singles from each of these larger releases would maybe gain a little bit of traction, specifically Give a Little Bit, which is the most pop-like pop single off of, in my opinion, off of even in the quietest moments. Like, that made it pretty big. Uh, everything else in the quietest moments um, was pretty art rock. And I mean, uh, look at the uh, closer on that record. It was pretty out there with different movements and... You even had, um, oh, what's his name? The guy from the Second World War in England. What's his name again? Winston Churchill. Thank you. You had Winston Churchill, of all people, coming and talking about, we shall never surrender, as like the instrumentations going on. And there was barely any lyrics, and there was themes about Jesus in there as well. And it's just like, it was it's, it's out there. Um, so... You know, that's like what Supertramp was leading up to this. So, why care about Breakfast in America? Well, this marks a very particular point in time for them as a band where, as you said, they hit it big. Like, they never hit this peak again. This was tops for them. But the reason they made that is because they made going into this the conscious decision to say, you know what? Let's try to make a pop record. Let's try to make a record filled with singles, like record-friendly singles. So we'll use all the things that we learned and all the skills that we honed making our art rock up to this point to make absolutely gorgeous, fun singles, pop singles. And it worked. It is so well-constructed. The level of artful care that honed their past releases is still here in Breakfast in America, and that's the crucial point, because this is where most other lesser bands, we would say, sold out. Like, oh, they made popular music when before they were making actual art. They sold out. Like, oh, they lost their sound while trying to make more general audience-pleasing sounds. They lost their way. They're selling out. But not here. No one is going to listen. No Super Tramp fan is going to listen to Breakfast in America and goes, they sold out. In my opinion, they hit their artistic peak here because they decided to incorporate some of those pop elements that were, let's say, missing in some of the pieces in past releases. And all of the songs here are better for it. The album's very well structured. The pacing is gorgeous, like absolutely articulate. And all of the songs, as you were mentioning before, have all these really fun moments. There's so much surprises here in terms of instrumentation and different kinds of sounds coming in. Like a harmonicon comes out of nowhere on Take the Long Way Home and is nowhere else on the record. And that is such a fun surprise, especially since the beginning of the second disc, or at least in the final release. And then the um, tuba as well. Don't forget the yeah, tuba. <laughs> exactly. And then you have the random soaring segment at the end of Take the Long Way Home, which is just really fun. And then you have the absolute instrumentation breakdown near the end of the logical song, which is just so much fun. There's many more that I can't cover in what makes up just a short segment on the show, but um, this is all to say that that's what makes this album and this music special, is that you have all of that artistic mastery 
that they had used for their art rock in the past, but with far more approachable songs, far more radio-friendly songs, and quite frankly, an album that is a more pleasing, smooth listen for the majority of the population, I would say. It's a masterpiece, in my opinion, because of that. And uh, unfortunately, they lost their way a little bit after that in terms of popularity, but I mean, this uh, uh, that doesn't take away from what they achieved here. No, not at all. I want to kind of branch off something you mentioned that the pacing of this album is impeccable. It's it's one of those things where you, it flows. It flows so well. You never feel like you're in a doldrum or you're in a, oh, I'm waiting till X, Y, Z. And what's really interesting, I actually read into this. And so this album was more or less kind of created and also curated um, in the sense that new stuff was created and old stuff was put in to fill the cracks. So I'll expand on that, what I'm, what I'm saying. So there were, I mean, Davies and Hodgson were the two primary writers on this album uh, for which it's attributed to. And they split it 50-50, essentially. And reading about it, um, was it the AZ Central did an interview of, um, of Hodgson and... Uh, let me just kind of read this this quote here from him, and it's 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 quite interesting. Because I think it, it's quite revealing on why this was so successful, and a little bit more relieving, uh, revealing on the dynamic between the band as well. So he <clears throat> he says, um, and then with uh, and then with breakfast in America, Rick uh, parentheses Davies, the other songwriter, we wrote separately, and I had a, a really look at what songs he had, and he wasn't as prolific as I was, meaning he didn't have as much of a uh like a, a backlog right um he uh hodgson goes on to say uh that i've always had 40 or 50 songs in my pocket to choose from and so i kind of saw what he had written and i kind of dipped into my bag and chose the songs that matched his and created the best kind of listening journey because that's how i viewed it it wasn't what's the hit on this album uh the song breakfast in america i wrote that 12 years before i chose it but it felt like, okay, this is a collection of songs, and this song might belong on. So we included it. And obviously, it was a great album title, so we chose that. So I, I just thought that was really interesting that like it, it, it's it's revealing on why we're saying these scenes, and they obviously achieved their job. Um, Davies, more or less, was writing the new material where Hodgson was kind of dipping into his backlog. And it's like, okay, how do we piece this thing together to make a coherent whole that just sounds good? And I think this is what the band needed and why they peaked here is kind of like you're saying that the previous albums are like art rock. They're a bit like more, quote unquote, more serious albums. Yeah. For sure. They're, they take themselves very seriously, particularly uh, even in the quietest moments, I would say, takes itself very seriously. And I love even in the quietest moments. I'd even say potentially even more than Breakfast in America, but like I, it, I can understand its flaws, which are, yeah, it does take itself very seriously, and sometimes it's a little bit to its detriment. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that their tour must have been phenomenal, because Hodgson kind of goes on in the interview to discuss, and I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase here, that... I mean, now they had this great mix of material. You have this fun, poppy, catchy singles on this record. And then you have this more serious, more quote-unquote deep, for lack of a better word, 
material that you can then couple with this to make even a better live listening experience. Um, and how he describes it as a very rich show that resulted from it. Um, so I can only imagine what their live show was like. I can imagine it was a lot of fun. Oh, I bet. And so, yeah, this was, this was just, um, really interesting to read about, um, with regards to the, to the band members. It's something I actually want to mention as well is the start of this band is kind of interesting. And I thought like a little bit goofy as well. So let me kind of unpack this here. So Rick Davies founded Super Tramp in 1969. Um, so he's primarily like your vocals and your piano guy. He, of course, does other things on the record. Prior to 1969, Davies was in the joint. And the band was backed financially by this Dutch millionaire, Stanley... I'm going to butcher this last name. Stanley August Messiah M. I'm just going to say Stanley August because um, I'm just going to butcher the last name. Um, so he saw promise in Davies, but was kind of like, eh, I don't really like this whole joint thing you got going on here. I'm not feeling it. So he bankrolled Davies' first standalone project, and that was Supertramp. And the initial members were found and recruited by an ad in a British music weekly called Melody Maker. So I just thought this was like <laughs> just such a kind of like happenstancey kind of like cool foundation story so this is all from allmusic.com we can throw the link in the show notes um and actually what's really interesting is that this bankroll and this financer guy bailed out after the second album and most of the members moved on and so by crime of the century it really was davies and hodgson remain and regroup new members and this is they they had kind of like in my opinion this last shot to make it because like all right you don't have this financial backer anymore you're kind of rebuilding this band from scratch after your two albums in like holy shit gotta pull off the crime of the century to stay alive yes and then and then boom you then chart with this album so it's just it was really interesting to kind of read just the history of this. I mean, it wasn't for lack of trying either. If you look at the the years between each album, I mean, they were releasing stuff fairly steadily. I mean, the longest wait time that a listener would have had during their normal release schedule, like before they got into later, like much later releases, an album was out at a maximum of every three years. Um, it was more steadily hitting every one to two. So, I mean, like they were definitely doing their due diligence and trying and just they must have hit their their spark of crime of the century. Then it, it kind of took a dip and then they re repeaked with uh, breakfast. So I just thought it was really interesting kind of, I mean, this almost like didn't happen from me reading about this. It's, it kind of seems like there, there was a lot of skill, but also a, a hint of luck and a lot of kind luck. of, <laughs> yes, with, with this going on. So um, I just thought that was really kind of fascinating to read into. And with regards to like, the instrumentation and we can have pivot to diving into actually discussing this as well it's fun just reading the list of instruments on here because it's it's just rich there's so much here in terms of variety you got electric keyboard you got harmonica like you mentioned the harpsichord organ synth um you got like a cartoony whistle in there <laughs> like um you got the clarinet that's like wah wah at times like with the little like muffle thing on it like a standard pump organ your standard guitar is obviously your bass uh you got saxophone 
and as well as the the token tuba which i love um (laughs) but it's just it's such like an odd mix of instruments on this album and the what they do with it is such a treat and i do want to clarify that it is still super tramp this is primarily keyboards pianos and saxophones and when i say keyboard i mean the Wurlitzer electric keyboard like that is what super tramp is is that keyboard piano and sax that is super tramp sure there's guitars and all these other instruments michael mentioned but like at its core that is super tramp sound uh i would even argue particularly the Wurlitzer electric piano in no small part because of breakfast in america where it plays a more prominent part than it didn't um the other releases i would say mm-hmm and yeah, so going to the album structure for me, um, and this kind of goes into what you're saying about like kind of constructing the album uh, to make it the most enjoyable listening experience by like picking and choosing, cherry picking more or less what would be the best pick for each of these slots here while uh, Rick Davis was doing more of the new material. So it was kind of like worked around him. Um, the That kind of reflects in what we have here. The album is... Uh, equal parts taking the piss out of America and American culture, um, in all good fun, but taking the piss out of America, <laughs> and uh, equal parts, um, the band leads, uh, Rick Davis and uh, Roger Hodson, criticizing each other's lifestyles and supporting their own. Um, that is this album. Um, it's either one or the other. Um, I don't think there's really any exceptions really here. Um, so like you got, or taking the piss out of America, you got the self-titled, which we'll get to, uh, Gone to Hollywood, uh, Some of Child of Vision, uh, but in terms of like, um, glorifying their own lifestyles and criticizing the others, you got Lord is a Mind, Goodbye Stranger, um, the other bits of Child of Vision, um, <laughs> uh, and all different kinds of other songs on here. Um, so it's, it's very fun to see, and that's actually one of the dynamics I loved so much about Supertramp that really comes through here, is you really get to see the stark contrast between who Rick Davis is and who Roger Hodson is, where you have Roger Hodson as, like, he's a very religious person, all of the religious songs here are by him, all the religious tones for even in the quietest moments, I mean, hell, that was a very religious tone uh, song from uh, that uh, album. And that was also, you know, Roger Hodson. So he's this like moral religious core to the band. And then you have Rick Davis, who I would say is more of the realist here. Like, hey, man, if I want to sleep around, I'm going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And he's not writing any really religious songs here. He's he criticizes maybe long term relationships for the sake of having long term relationships. Um, it's, It's very fun to see these two that are very different, very different people writing together to make this piece, this one piece together, while at the same time kind of glorifying their own life decisions and criticizing the others, um, which is just really, really fun. And at the same time, taking the piss out of America. Um, and, and so, like, the the album as a whole, like, and let me be clear, like, there, because of all of that, there's a lot of disillusion, indifference, lust, and disgust throughout this record, but the entire time, it's as fun and giddy as that lady at the front cover of the Mm -hmm. album. Like, I don't know how you can manage to do that, because to me, this is all pretty heavy themes and pretty bleak themes, but at the same time, like, I'm listening to this album with a giddy smile on my face like this (laughs) this happy lady on the cover. So, that to me is the going testament. It's a fun album, but at the same time, there's meat here. There's mm-hmm. things here. 
um, to actually uh, digest. And I just do want to touch on their relationship here a little bit more. I do get a little bit of Paul and John from uh, Beatles vibes from this. Not to the extent there, because those two really hated each other for a, a brief time uh, during the Beatles breakup era. Um, and here, not so much. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of accounts of people saying that they were nothing but pleasant to each other. And it's just business and things, you know, uh, it, depending on who whose recounts you read, things were great. On this point, Harry Doherty, uh, Doherty? Doherty. He's the, uh, or he was, the uh, Melody Maker journalist uh, at the time, and he was doing a piece on Supertramp, and he said, In the three days with the band, I don't think I saw Davis and Hodgson converts once, other than exchange courteous greetings. And there's other accounts saying, and even from Davis and Hodgson saying that, like, the writing was very separate for this. That's like straight off casual conversations. You kind of look at the the messages in there. It's almost, you could view that more or less as a descriptor for their relationship. Yeah. So, things were cordial and professional, but I don't think we can say at this point, at least from the historical recounts we have and the material presented here, I don't think they were necessarily the best of friends anymore. Their their ideological lifestyle differences were just so stark and different here. I'm bringing this all up to say that that emotional backing is here and makes the album that much greater because their emotions and their mental states are both playing off each other here and supporting one another in a beautiful melodic sense here. And so I implore you when you're listening to this, listen in as Michael said about like, oh, you could probably read in a casual conversations as kind of like potentially being a little bit informed by Rick's disillusionment with talking to Roger and hanging around with Roger. Like maybe that's not, maybe we're reading too much into it, but at the same time, Art tends to reflect reality. And what else does does Roger have or Rick have to work off of than this very big part of his life here with Roger? So, you know. I think that's really fun. Like you mentioned, you you get differences in the songwriting in terms of the topics and opinions. I think one that is really interesting mentioned about like the piss on America. I love the duality between Gone Hollywood and Breakfast in America. Oh. Because Hodgson in interviews pretty much discloses that he he loved America. He loved going into California because they had like fresh superstores on every corner. He was he was able to be vegetarian. He was able to express his more um uh like like you're saying religious side. It's it, it like it was like his people that he found there. And he loved it. And Breakfast in America was written um like we're talking about about like um before like way before this album. So this is back in like uh around like 1967 when he was back in England. So you can kind of get a sense of like tongue in cheek, kind of a a bit of like childlike longing for like longing for America and like a fresh start, like, ah, uh, like, oh, I bet all the girls in California, kippers for breakfast, oh, like everyone's a millionaire. Like, it's this like childlike, like mommy dear, mommy dear, I bet they have kippers for breakfast. Like, I bet it's like, like a child yanking on his mother's sleeve excitement. And you contrast that with Davies Gone Hollywood, which I would argue is like a very cynical commentary on the definition of success in America through the Hollywood machine almost and it's just like the duality between between the two i think is just so 
fun to listen to. To put it another way, for listeners that might be familiar with the Beatles, I I, I would say rough equivalence here would be that the pole is is Roger Hodgson, and then the um the John would be uh, Rick Davis. Probably it's it, that's the rough correlation we're talking about here. It's good fun the duality between the two, and they parted ways a little bit when I was reading into it because, I mean. They achieved the peak here. So, like, you're working hard, you're working hard. Like, Hodgson was saying he was in the studio for a month to a month and a half, and he slept there, and his wife was pregnant and stayed with him there. Oh, no. So, you're talking about, like, you are uniting, and of course, there's, like, some of this tension between Davies and Hodgson, but you're at least united on, like, we are achieving this. They're able to be a little bit siloed in their writing, and Hodgson's able to compliment Davies from his backlog, and they're able to fill in the gaps, like, construct this thing. They have this goal, like, we're going to get there, and they achieve it. And then it becomes a, a sense of, okay, now you have this, these tensions that probably resurface, and now that you've achieved the goal, it's like, and you have this mega success, where do you go from there? And it's a lot of these songs, I think, also reflect a bit of that attitude of a bit of the family strife because both of them started to have families later on and a bit more of that tension between the two of them take the long way home i i I could very much see that being so hodgson said he he left the band primarily to uh live the lifestyle he wanted he wanted to spend time with his kids and he wanted to make that a priority and i could very much see take the long way home as almost like that conversation between him and his wife. And again, how much you can look into these things, how much you want to interpret. This is just my observations is it's very much the wife. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Take the long way home. Like, I I don't want to see you for a little bit. Like you've been touring for so long. You're gone. You're not making your kids a priority or yada, yada. You could look into, you could look into a bit of the commentary and uh, calling from experience with a lot of these songs on here, and when you read about the stories between the two kind of the tent poles of this album, Davies and, and Hodgson, and that you you bring up a great point, Mark, that like active listening to this album is a treat because it's a treat on two ends. You mentioned it's a treat on like a superficial pop surface level enjoyment. Like you put on this record, and it's the instrumentation; it's a feel good instrumentally feel good poppy fun album but you read into it more and there's depth and there's nuance and there's commentary and there's real experiences that seem to surface in here and that are reflected in in these songs um so it can make for quite a treat uh to active listen so at this point i think we are ready to dive into uh songs in here that stand out to us or call out songs where we have particular things to say and michael it sounded like you had something to say about gone hollywood so uh uh, care to divulge this is the start this album needs to set the stage is what i gotta say it's theatrical it's jazzy it's bluesy it's grand and like I said, this is one of the ones on the album that doesn't have like a standard song structure. Like you, it reminds me a bit of like, like what Sturgill will do where you kind of bring in the brass, you bring in, it's like, whoa, where did this come? Like a lot of, you don't know where this is going a little like Lord Huron has song structures like this, where they take you somewhere and the song like evolves and it's more of a story. That's very much this song. In my opinion, it's, it's very much like I'm watching a set piece on stage. 
you got this kind of like build up to the single big chorus if i only had time like it's just it's so much it's so much fun you got this beach boys like harmony and pop rock passionate instrumentation backing and i love the like the initial kind of suspense and like tense feeling that this song has of like the high key of the piano um kind of going into this this look like a covered also with the low tone guitars that are more like heavy and contrast the quicker high-pitched vocals and piano and then you get this moment where it's almost the spotlights on davies and it's this theatrical monologue nothing new in my life today and you got this then bluesy jazzy backing by uh was it john hell uh i don't know how to pronounce let me ch- look as <laughs> john helliwell with his like saxophone jazzy work in the background and then it, it just like emotionally builds from this monologue to this just grand instrumentation and you get just this awesome emotional payoff of you can just feel the emotions from this this monologue build instrumentally and then have its peak and just the, it, you look at this it, in this song the pacing and variety and the dynamic range it's the way to start this album like you look at all their prior work and this is like this is what this album's going to be and it's such a fun fun entry into into the album mm-hmm. i'd like to call out that you can see the creative heads of rick davis and roger hodson coming in in contrast here in gone hollywood you have the cynicism of rick davis basically the entire beginning part of gone home and then the if we only had time for you which seems very religious coming in with roger hodson you can see mm-hmm. like the optimism coming through if we only had time for god and if we only if we only did that and then back to cynicism which is just really yes really fun and that's the kind of things that i love to see and hear uh from the beatles work and I, i'm gonna continue ragging on this because i i can't help but draw these parallels between two creative heads with very different ideals and worldviews, both working to the same goal of making music, making an album. So it's just really fun to see that stark difference uh, exemplified here and gone Hollywood. So definitely listen for that. You can hear that difference, the tonal difference of these two, the work that these two put in uh, accentuated here. So listen for that. Oh, 100%. I, and, and what's what's fun about this is that, like you're saying, the, the lyrics are deep. You can read into them and you can have the fun discussions where I would almost argue that if we only had time for you, you could, you could look at that two different ways. You could look at it like you're saying from the Hodgson point of view, like, oh, if we only had time to dedicate to um, to God from a religious standpoint. I also, when I listened to that lyric, I had in my mind Davies commenting kind of on his experience with the like this the music industry say in in the states where oh if we only had time for you guys uh yeah maybe this could work out but we're too booked and we got these other things going on uh maybe (laughs) next time like oh you're not the one we're looking for and just like yeah you're it's this disillusionment with the idea of success like and this the idea is almost like more powerful than the actual thing where like the the song comments on that where 
now he's the talk of the boulevard and it's like this empty feeling like you you climb the ladder of success you did what you were told and and now what it's like the shiny toy with the great marketing campaign when you were growing up where it was it almost became more about the toy it became more about what it represented and being on the end like oh my friend bob and joe schmo has one like i gotta have one and like for example like calvin hobbs the beanie the beanie strip oh no a little bit of that so it's like that's kind of what i i I see in this is that like it's the commentary that like this this ideal of success is really just it's this it's just it's empty like it's to make it big you got all these kind of like creeps and you don't really converge well with this hollywood and and I love the the lyrics in here too because it's 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 I view it as the commenting of their experience with this where the world is waiting for you keep your chin up even though it's like they're just you like it, like the commentary is they're just using you for your material then they're gonna poop you out to the sidewalk they don't care like um <laughs> so I could I could see that um like yeah forget the pain of the process like. Uh, they kind of have this whole success and lures of the like the 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 trophy of being on the end and being successful and it's just it it's it all over this theatrical monologue driven song it's just such a treat to look into um <laughs> also taco bell makes an, <laughs> an appearance in this which is kind of fun um but yeah, that's that's pretty much what I wanted to say on that one. This this is just it's a treat. It's it's a fun one lyrically and it's an even more fun one uh instrumentally. Mm-hmm. The one that I want to call out next is skipping way ahead to Casual Conversations, which is a Rick Davis number. So, uh oh man, this one is very unique on the record where they decide to channel Muzak. I'm not saying music, I'm saying Muzak. So M-U-Z-A-K. And those that may be unfamiliar with the term, I assure you, you know Muzak, but maybe don't know it by name. Muzak uh, is um, a brand of background music that was typically played in retail stores or other public establishments. So imagine you're in JCPenney, maybe with your mom, (laughs) and there is generic background music playing in the background. Uh, At least back in the olden days, it was Muzak. And I see very much that kind of energy being channeled in casual conversations because they bring out and i think this is the only time they do bring it out they bring out the xylophone and that suddenly changes the tonal landscape here to be very it's not it doesn't it's not boring to listen to but at the same time i listen to it i'm like oh yeah i feel like i've heard this before and the things i've heard before that sounded like this were boring because it was all played in the background of retail stores and that paired with the subject matter of casual conversations about, like, we talk about nothing. Nothing ever happens. Like, our relationship is dead. Like, it's just, it's a bleak song where, like, when they finally break up or separate, depending on how you want to read into who the singer and the singer's subject are and what their relationship is, 
when they finally uh, part ways, let's say, like the singer at the end is like, okay, I'm I'm kind of glad this is over. I'm glad. I think I'm glad. That I'm glad to be done. Um, and, and and that all paired with this very blase, indifferent, bland kind of sounding instrumentation is so fun. And that combination makes this song one of my favorites on the record, personally. Just can't see. Why we disagree In casual conversations And how they bore me Yeah, they go on and on Endlessly No matter what I say um, I'm curious if you have anything to say on it, but I... I love casual conversations for this mix of <laughs> you, Zach, with such fun or very challenging subject matter. It, it makes the song fun. Um, I would agree. And I think there is value to be gained from the listener if they don't do, if they don't read up on, say, the band or they don't, they say they don't care about the dynamic between the two or they don't know and they're just listening to it the first time. I think the song is relatable for a lot of people um, in the sense that I feel like everyone has gone through a friendship or a relationship of sorts where kind of an elephant in the room or the main issue is just never like addressed and the small talk covers everything up and there's just like this, this underbelly of just disagreement and almost not distaste but just like you know what the friendship's broken but you kind of keep carrying on it's like why are we doing this like and i i i think that can be very relatable for a lot of people and so i i view a lot of value lyrically gained from this can can still be gained without having the background knowledge of uh what what davies and hodgson and kind of the dynamic of the band right and I guess in terms of the pacing of the album, this is a great placement of this song, is that you got this nice, slower, just, I mean, it's the simplest song on the album instrumentally. I mean, Mark, like you alluded to, you got the Muzak on the background. Um, I think that's really nice to have before kind of the rocking out finish of Child Division at the end of the album. Um so you you we're able to see the the thought that went into the pacing and the the ordering of the songs on this album. Yeah, and I forgot to mention that like t- talking of pacing, this just came after the banger <laughs> that was mm-hmm. just another nervous wreck, um, which is very much a Rick Davis number. Um, which like had lyrics such as "I don't give a damn, fight while you can, kill, shoot 'em up, yeah, they'll run amok, shout Judas loud, they'll hear us, soldier, sailor, who's your tailor? They'll run for cover when they discover everyone's a nervous wreck now." Holy sh! <laughs> <laughs> it is a it is a song with a heavy message, but at the same time, it's so fun. You don't it even is. notice. You don't yes. even notice. It is such a fun song to listen to. I don't listen to this and think like, oh, like I I don't like the tone that this guy's taking. Or like, oh, um, that's too violent for me. I'm just 
totally in. I'm totally sold. Like, yeah, this fits. This is fun. I'm feeling this tone right now, which is so bizarre given what the song is actually saying. It, it, and going back to Sturgill, actually, if I could use him as an example, um, it, it reminds me actually a lot of Call to Arms, with Call to Arms is so fun of a song, but at the same time, the subject matter there is very, very critical of our armed services and uh, military. And uh, we had a long discussion in a past episode about that song and some of the heavy material there. But this, at the same time, at the end, we were like, but yeah, all that said, it's such a fun song. Like, I almost don't care. And that's, that same thing kind of applies here where, yeah, like, I mean, you have literally a lyric here, kill, shoot him up. But at the same time, like, Oh, but it's so it's so fun. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, when I first listened to this album, I was I it was like a a stand-in for Grand Hotel for me. Where Grand Hotel, I wasn't listening to it as frequently as kind of the feel good album. And I honestly was using this one as just cuz I didn't read the lyrics. I was just listening to it cuz it was that feel good. And I loved I loved this song. I loved Child of Vision. I loved all the uh, Gone Hollywood and the Breakfast in America, but you actually read into those and you're like, oh, okay. Like, this is actually, that's that's what I was kind of stumped at when I was reading into these. I'm like, oh, like, so that's what this is about. And it was kind of eye-opening that like, wow, they really did a great job on conveying serious subject matters and good lyrics in a way that's very easily digestible and consumable by anyone like you don't even have to care about the lyrics and you listen to it it's like this is so catchy and fun Michael, do you have any songs you want to call out next? I would say Take the Long Way Home, I want to discuss a little further. So, as I know that you probably are aware, this is the start of side two on the vinyl. Mm-hmm. Um, side one is all the way from Gone Hollywood to Oh Darling, and then Take the Long Way Home uh, starts out side two. And, dear Lord, the beginning of this song is probably oh. one... Mm-hmm. One of my most favorite beginnings to any song that I think I've listened to. You got this slow bring in of Hodgson on the electric keyboard. No, it's the piano. It's it's a oh, piano. Oh, it's, it's, it's the full piano. Oh, yeah. yeah so no. you got you got him on the piano, and then their one time use of the harmonica is their lack of use and the restraint of use makes it all the more potent because they apply it so strategically and so well that it conveys all the right emotions um, in this song. And I just, I, I just want to call out this song just seriously for the sake of the beginning of this. Um, we've also discussed a little bit regarding the lyrics and how I think this is perhaps um, Hodgson kind of struggling a bit with the touring lifestyle while also the tension between him and Rick Davies and um, perhaps with his wife as well with the, the kind of work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Um and 
It's like, yeah, so when the day comes to settle down, who's to blame if you're not around? You took the long way home. So the long way home, kind of this sense, meaning touring, right? Um, Whereas it's also used in a more literal sense, like, I don't want to see you. Take the long way home. I think that's, I mean, it's very much, I think, reflective of what Hodgson was saying. You look at him, he was, his wife was pregnant staying in the studio with him when he was sleeping there for like a month to a month and a half and then you got him describing the reasons that he left the band were what he cites were primarily kind of lifestyle driven of he wanted to focus on his kids and family um i see very much of that coming through in this song and the beginning with the harmonica kind of reminds me a little bit of it's it's lonely adding the harmonica in there conveys kind of the self-reflecting emotive feelings of like loneliness and being on a journey like a long journey like take for example lord huron they apply it in ghost on the shore and it works so well in that song because the harmonica the timbre of that instrument like it emotes those emotions um when applied like this and i think it's just used so strategically in this with bringing in the song with like okay he's on his own he's touring he's he's on this journey by himself It's little treats like this that don't make the songs on this album sound like they have like a rigid structure is they have fun. They have fun. Like you mentioned the, was it the, the instrumental like breakdown at the end of the logical song, right? Where they have fun at the end of that song. Oh, it's so good. To indulging themselves with having the fun of like bringing it in slow for Take the Long Way Home. Like they let the song breathe. Like, and then let it soar at the end too. The yes. soaring for like the three or four or five measures that they do at the end of the song is well earned and it's a beautiful payoff. You, you almost feel like he's t- lifting off the ground for a little bit. It's, it's poetry. Mm-hmm. And then harmonica slowly closes it out as well. It's, Great song. That's all I got to say is fantastic song. It works as amazing as a single. It works even better in the context of this album with the pacing. And especially if you have, say, a vinyl listening experience where you finish the side one, you flip it over, you have Gone Hollywood that starts you off with the first track. Amazing. You have a bringing in with Take the Long Way Home that slowly brings you back into this, back into the atmosphere of this song. And it's just Man, what a treat. What a treat it, it is. Yeah, so a uh, song that I want to call out um, is actually the, t- the tuple. So you got the Gone Hollywood and uh, Child of Vision. Um, I don't think I've talked yet about these two. Um, I feel they're very cyclical, actually. Um, so it makes the album as a whole feel very cyclical to me, where the Gone Hollywood and Child of Vision, the driving force of both of these songs, at least at the beginning parts, are the piano that is doing a very rigid, fast, staccato 
beat. So in Gone Hollywood, you have the the keyboard at the beginning, going like ad hominem for like basically the whole song. And then Child of Vision, you also have again uh, fade in with the piano again, doing a different kind of very staccato beat going on, and it makes these two songs very much of the same, but very different as well. And it just sort of it ties a nice bow around this package for me, because it reminds me of where we started, but also it, it's a good way of indicating, but we're wrapping up. It almost feels like a motif in a sense. It feels like, oh yes, I've heard this kind of thing before, but used in this context, I, I feel it's like we're closing things down with this. This is the finale. Um, and it, it's, it's a very well-constructed, a way to communicate that um, for me. I th- I thought that was really, really well done. And just selfishly, I have to call out, like, Child of Vision seems very, very similar to another album that I love, which is uh, Plastic Beach by Gorillaz. Um, the song on there called Emperor Ants, um, which features Little Dragon, they have the same key signature, Child of Vision, in that song. And when about halfway through Empire Ants, uh, they get into like more of a groovy beat, and that's where uh, uh, Little Dragon comes in for her feature. It seems very similar to me to the driving beat of Child of Vision. And I can't help but, like, every time I hear one of those two songs, I am reminded in a good way about the other. So, um, anybody that's a Gorillaz fan, and if you like Plastic Beach, particularly um, uh, Emperor Ants, like for sure at the very least give child division a listen because i get very similar vibes like i mean hell they share the same key signature similar aesthetics for the the backing force the backing uh beats when the song gets going so definitely give that a look and uh inversely if you like child division a lot in super tramp but maybe aren't familiar with plastic beach or uh emperor ants Give Plastic Beach a try, particularly Emperor Ants. Keep an eye out for it because I consider these two songs very similar. last thing I want to call it is not necessarily a song, it's just, I guess, discussing how I like how Davies and Hodgson's voice, honestly, when I first listened to this album, I didn't realize that there were two singers, um, just from listening to it. I think they complement each other very well, and they fit where it's not like, oh, this is a different person. It's not like jarring, like, whoa, whoa, what is this? Like, because Hodgson has much more of a falsetto and... Davies is a little bit more, I guess, baritone. Yeah, baritone. And they don't sound starkly different. Where it didn't jump out to me listening to this that, oh, these are two different people. And I think it makes the the harmonies as well a lot better. And I think that's important to the the listening experience as well, that you don't feel like you're kind of hopping between people. Because otherwise it would have been like a 50-50 hop between the two because it's uh, each has about five songs. So I don't know. I just I think that they're good compliments for each other on this album.
Yeah, no, I would agree there. The vocal styles and voice in terms of how their voice sounds is very complimentary to each other. It's it's kind of fun to hear like Rick Davis do his own version of tenor, like uh, falsetto with Goodbye Stranger, which is very much like the kind of thing that uh, Roger Hodson would typically do. So and even then they, they do sound somewhat similar to each other. So they do they do complement each other fairly well. You're not going to be kind of thrown off like, whoa, this is a different singer than the one I heard in the past. So like unless someone pointed out to you, it's possible you wouldn't even notice, which is good. I mean, that that means that like, I mean, the, the album as it's as a whole is cohesive as opposed to like, oh, yeah, now we're getting to this other song written by this totally other person. So yeah, no, definitely I would I would agree there. Mm-hmm. Can we can we talk a little bit about breakfast in America? <laughs> yes, it's my favorite meal. To quote Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, why would anyone eat anything but breakfast food? <laughs> Good question, Ron Swanson. Good question. Um, so like we talked about before, Hodgson really loved America, loved California, kind of felt like he found his people there, and. Um, that's like kind of fun because, like I talked about before, you have the aspects of this childlike inflation of the coolness of America, I guess, right? Of like, do they have kippers for breakfast? I bet everyone's a millionaire in Texas, and it's it's just kind of fun. Um, and it's it's plucky. You got this harpsichordian carnival sound with this tuba that's. It's just goofy. Like, I have never heard anything like this before. Like, it's, well, aside from maybe gym <laughs> class heroes, but yeah. Um, it sounds like the album art looks to a T. I love the juxtaposition between that tuba and you get the deepest of deeps, and you also get these really high pitches to complement with that. And it's the combination of the two is just, it's a good, fun song. That's pretty much all I wanted to say on that. I just wanted to touch that I love the instrumental coupling between the tuba and the traditionally kind of high-pitched, plucky instrumentation that uh, Supertramp's known for. Yeah, I would I would agree on appreciating the uh, surprise tuba that comes on in. Um, yeah, Breakfast in America is a fun song. Like, as in hearing the actual song, the, the parts that you actually remember about that Cupid song or whatever, by whoever the hell it was, it doesn't matter. They don't matter. Um, but it, it was fun to hear the proper song um, in its true form, finally. So um, definitely would agree there. Yeah, I, I'm I, I actually at this point, I, I think I've called out the ones that I really had a burning desire to call out. So do you have any others you, you wish to uh, point out? Um, no, I don't believe so. But I would say this one of the albums that we've covered, and this is, I guess this is kind of getting into final statement territory, but I guess of the albums we've covered, I think this is one of the most accessible, um, alongside like the Explorers Club Grand Hotel. I would 100% agree. It's like, I know we talked about the lyrics and a lot of the band dynamic. We got a lot into that while discussing over this, but I think anyone can pick up this album and it's it's a pop record through and through instrumentally so it's it's just fun it's i i would say just 
pop it on and it's not going to sound like anything that you've probably heard before. If you like kind of Brit pop rock, maybe you, it, this is kind of similar to what you're used to, but I would say for the majority of listeners, this is probably going to be something new, but I, I think it's, it's probably the mo- one up there is one of the more accessible ones that we've covered. I would actually argue one of the points you mentioned. I think this is actually not going to be new sounding at all to the majority of people here. I would wager the vast majority of people that would be seeking this album out saying they haven't heard it before would actually have heard quite a bit of these songs before Breakfast America because of that terrible song that sampled it. Um, I would imagine a lot of people actually recognize the logical song but might not necessarily know the name or know that it was attributed to Super Tramp. I would wager a lot of people also know Goodbye Stranger. From The Office, that's how I related it to Kaylee as well. Like, you know, the song Goodbye Toby, like Goodbye Stranger, <laughs> that's from Super Tramp. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I, I there's a lot of songs here that were hits and people heard these songs before, but not, might not necessarily know they're Super Tramp. So like, go in, give it a listen from start to back. You you might be surprised at like, oh, wait a minute. I know that it's it's that song or oh, it's this song. I I know this from XYZ. So that's a really fun little thing to explore and uh, experience just on the face of it of like, oh, I actually know this, but I didn't know it was attributed to like this band and this uh, LP. So that's that's a fun thing to uh, look out for, I would say. So I don't think it's anything actually new to most people. A lot of people have heard a lot of songs on here before, but might not even know it. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, no, this this was this was a fun listen to go back to, and it was fun to actively listen to it after having listened to it only in like car rides and occasionally just on my speaker and get to know a little bit more of the background on things here. And it, it makes me appreciate more of what's going on here, knowing more of the context. Yeah, I would agree. The context helps, but it it's certainly not required. It's a fun listen regardless. And I, honestly, I feel like you said everything I would w- have wanted to say otherwise in my own closing statement. So I think we'll just, I think we'll just call it there. Michael, thank you so much for uh, taking time to talk about Breakfast in America with me. Yeah, no, this was fun. I'm, I'm glad we chose this one as our next one. And it was, it was a nice, uplifting kind of pop record after uh, pure comedy. So it was, it's good fun. Yeah, no, I would agree. It was good fun. And uh, thank you, listener, for tuning in. I'm glad that you uh, had fun as well, or I certainly hope you did. If you want to look up any of the uh, album arts that we talked about, or if you want to look up any of the links or quotes that we mentioned throughout the show, it's all going to be in the show notes. So uh, you can look in your podcast player of a choice. Most of them display show notes. Uh, If yours doesn't, that's fine. Uh, It's all available online at badmusichurts.com. That's Hurts Like the Car Company or Hurts Like the Wave Hurts. Either one works. And we're looking forward to meeting you guys next time to talk about whatever record we talk about next time. So uh, stay tuned. And until then, take care. Bye.
So I have to know, did you know the Backstreet Boys covering this in advance before you heard this song? Wait, I'm no, no, I had no idea that they, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) You're saying the Backstreet Boys covered this song? Wait, are you serious? I thought that's what you were going to talk about. That's like, everyone knows Breakfast in America, but because the Backstreet Boys covered it. (laughs) Oh, I thought it was, I didn't know that was Backstreet Boys. I thought that was like, oh, what was like the... NSYNC? Not NSYNC. It was, it's not Blink-182 either. It's the... Oh, God, it was like the middle school band. (laughs) I I can't. I assure you, it was Backstreet Boys, and they did Breakfast in America. All right, I gotta listen to this now. I had no idea it was a cover until I started actually listening to music around college time, and I got around a super trap, and I was like, oh. (laughs) Let's see here. So this is, um, so you're saying this is uh, Breakfast in America. Yeah, Um, I would wager that that's the way most people recognize this song is Backstreet Boys, their cover. Yeah, let's say Backstreet. In the same way that uh, Twist and Shout, I would wager most people know that song because of the Beatles. <laughs> is it Backstreet Boys? I'm Googling it. Okay, I'm maybe, YouTubing it. Maybe I'm wrong then. Hold on. I don't think it's Backstreet Boys. I think it's it's not Blink-182. It's... Uh, one second. Who is it? Guys, this is driving me nuts. It's cover. Um... Okay, wait a minute. Now I feel like I'm losing my mind here because I'm not saying anything about it being covered. I thought this song was covered. I thought this was the Backstreet Boys. I thought this was covered at one point as well, and I can't. Like, you've heard this song before, and it wasn't Super Tramp, right? No, Am I, I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah. Cover versions of Breakfast of America by Supertramps. Secondhandsongs.com. Let's check this out. Because, like, the one I'm thinking of has, like, the ba-da-da-da um, after Yeah, they the, really, they really upplay that. Yeah, they upplay it to the nth degree. All right, here's, there's a whole list of... Okay, please enlighten me. Um, oh, geez. Okay, so maybe it's Kite, Gomez. I'm, I'm looking at ones in the 2000s here. This is driving me nuts as well, because I know I've heard this before, not by Supertramp. Is it Kite? Let's try this. Gross. I don't think that's it. <laughs> Gomez. It's like punky lyrics. It's like, nope. No thanks. Um, uh, Gomez. Who the fuck is Gomez? Not seeing anything pop up immediately with that. 48th Street Collective. Maybe that's it. Boy. I feel dumb right now. That's definitely not it. Okay, that's like slow and bluesy. Oh my goodness. I didn't think this would be the most difficult part of the episode. Yeah, what? I Like, I know it was... Did we slip into, like, a different time stream or something? Like, I feel that's what just happened. I don't fucking hell. Okay, I, I do not... Why is this still playing? Dear Lord, shut up. <laughs> um, uh, I thought for sure it was, like, one of those popular bands that we had around middle school time. Late 1990s, yes. No, early 2000s. Is what early 2000s. I don't yeah, know about that. Yeah, it was... But... I... Ugh. I thought it was. I don't know. I oh, I may just be making up shit. Apparently, I may have been gone crazy. 
adaptations? Would that be it? Samples, web covers. I'm going to hop to the iTunes store here. It may be a better way to search this. I already tried that. Uh, I, I genuinely feel like I'm losing my mind right now. I am shook. Unless, unless we actually listen to the was there a remix of this song done by Supertramp? did they redo it like did they do an, a re-recording like a mass a remastering of it because there was a, a different song it was a different song man i'm i'm not fooling why does itunes store why is it so slow come on do the thing dear lord this is slow why is this so slow is this just me, or is iTunes Store always just like a snail for you? It's like the App Store. It's always a snail. It's a very archaic system. It's doing its best. It's doing its best. Okay. Wait a minute. I oh my god. I might. I might have found it. Give me a. Give me What's a second. What's the name? What's the if name? Apple I may Music wasn't shaking the bed right now. God, damn it. you're gonna have to give me a second here. There we go. Okay, finally loaded. Right, YouTube's doing okay. Oh, okay. Got it. You found it. I found it, Michael. I found it. Oh we my f- god. Okay, you're you have to let me know. We figured it out. Oh my god. I okay. It's driving so, me crazy. Needless to say, guys, I was wrong. <laughs> it was not the Backstreet Boys. I I don't know why I thought it was the Backstreet Boys. Like I <laughs> Okay, so past Mark was an idiot. I just always, I because I remembered hearing the song from our sister Amy. Um, it was on her playlist, and I could have sworn it was around the time when uh, Beach Boy or not Beach Boys uh, when uh, Backstreet Boys was also being played. I, I, I maybe I just correlated the two. Who knows? But I found it. It is Gym Class Heroes, Cupid's Chokehold. It samples. Breakfast in America. Oh my God! Cupid. Okay, here chokehold. That's why we've been having a problem finding this. It's not a cover. It's a sample. Oh, gross. Okay, one second. Let me. Try I, I can send you a link. No, I got it. I got. It. Oh, YouTube privacy warning. Okay, f- just watch it on YouTube then. Fine. Funnily enough, this tells you everything you need to know about the rapper doing this because I don't remember the rap beat during the song. The, the that sampled it at all. It is a hundred percent unmemorable. It is a forgetful mess. <laughs> the only thing I remembered about this song was the Breakfast in America bits, funnily enough. So that tells you everything you need to know about gym class heroes. Where are they now? Who knows? Who cares? I'm still listening to this. <laughs> I'm fascinated. 92 million views? <laughs> Holy f***. <laughs> what? YouTube was a mistake. Yeah, it's the ba da da da, right? Because they overdo that. They ham it up with that. I love that I totally forgot that it's like rapping during the. God, same here. What? Would it would have helped me know that this wasn't a Backstreet Boys number, but like, I'm not even kidding. I totally forgot there was rapping during well, this, this, uh, this I, song that I, sampled it. I know it's. It, 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 I, well, it's funny because I was talking to Kaylee about this. I'm like. Yeah, Mark and I are doing Breakfast in America, and she kind of like, it's like, K, dumb. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. So <laughs> I was like, you know, it's the album by the group that wrote the song 
take a look at my girl and like she instantly recognized it but i yeah. bet it wasn't the original i bet exactly. it was something it was because different of, of, of this nonsense <laughs> of a song that is better left forgotten in history <laughs> but I, 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 I just now i'm learning who gym class heroes is and i wish i didn't <laughs> well we did it i we wish it was backstreet boys <laughs> <sighs> whatever all right i'm closing the tab on this never to be opened again but i'm glad we uncovered the truth <laughs> the truth of my completely fragmented terrible childhood memory i should have looked this up before we started recording i just i <laughs> Oh boy. Um, yeah, it's no good. Backstreet Boys should do a cover on this. They probably actually would do probably an okay job. That's that's what I'm saying. Like, I, <laughs> I feel that's a gimme, but what hey, do I know. Uh, Backstreet Boys, call us. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. organize it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll accept a generous 15% cut of your profits. <laughs> oh my god, are they still a thing? They can't still be a thing. No, I think they are. I think are you they serious? Are. I think they're still, oh, they're still touring. Oh my goodness, that is incredible. They're on the front street now, though. They oh. they got promoted. <laughs> They're just on the street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the street boys. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Um. Can we try to bring this back into some semblance of a structure, please? 